about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Um, Let me say hello. Uh, My name's Andrew Errington. I'm the senior minister here, especially if you're new or visiting us. Uh, It's really great that you're here. If you want to get in touch, use the QR code on the front of the sheets you got on the way in. Inside there, we'll also have the Bible reading, which I'll tell you about in a moment. Uh, But for now, let's pray as we pick up again, reading the story of Elijah. Father, as we read today of an incredible moment, in scripture. Would you please teach us and show us yourself? For Jesus' sake. Amen. Stories have critical moments. Uh, Movies and books have famous scenes. If I ask you to think of a scene from, say, Jaws, this is where my mind goes, the bit at the end where the boat is getting eaten by the shark. Uh, If you haven't seen it, It's a movie about a shark. Um, Be ready for it. Um, Or if I asked you to think of a scene from Braveheart, what do you think of? Blue face, freedom, something like that. Maybe the bit where he gets his guts ripped out, but maybe not. Um, What is Casablanca without the incredible final scene? What would The Hobbit be? Not the movie, which is an abomination, but the book. What would The Hobbit be without the scene where Bard fires his last black arrow? Great moment. Spoilers. What would Pride and Prejudice be without the chance meeting of Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy at Pemberley? This is the best production of it, in my view. What would Alien be without... I'm not going to put it on the screen. The scene with, you know, the stomach... Now, not all these examples will be connecting uh, with you, which is okay, but you get the idea. And the reason to say this is because today we get to a scene that is famous. We get to a moment that if it is the movie of the story of Elijah, this would be the big scene that was on all the trailers. It's the moment when Elijah, the prophet Elijah, confronts King Ahab and the prophets of Baal, and he challenges them to a showdown. It's a powerful, confronting scene that makes you feel more than one thing, actually, and I think leaves us with a real challenge to think about. Now, because it's a dramatic moment, I wanted to do the Bible reading differently, so uh, Beck, you can come up now. Beck is going to read the text in sections and we'll pause, and I'll make comments as we go. Does that make sense? Uh, If you want to read along, it'll come on the screen, and it's also in your outlines. Uh, Just to get you up to where we are, last week, we heard that after a long time, in the third year of the drought, the drought began with Elijah's first meeting with King Ahab. Um, Last week, we heard how now the Lord tells Elijah that he has to meet Ahab again, for God is about to send rain. And so the meeting is arranged through Ahab's servant, 
Obadiah, that's what we read about last week, and now we pick up a verse 16, and they meet. Thanks, Beck. So 1 Kings 18, verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Ahab calls Elijah a troubler of Israel. But Elijah responds by saying that, no, Ahab, you are the real troubler. They disagree, you see, about what trouble really is. Ahab thinks Elijah is troubling Israel because of the drought, and it has been a dreadful drought. But Elijah sees that Ahab is the true troubler. He has done much worse because he has turned his back on the Lord and given the kingdom of Israel into the, 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 the dominion of Baal. He's, he's allowed it to embrace Baal, and in the end, that will have terrible consequences. But, you know, the battle Elijah wants to fight is not mainly with Ahab, but with Baal and his representatives. And so Ahab has them all assemble. And then Elijah speaks to the people of Israel. Uh, did you notice, it's not a long speech, but it's a tough speech, isn't it? He says they are wavering between two opinions. Um, the Hebrew is actually really a bit odd. It says you're hopping between two branches. It's like somebody trying to kind of balance on two crutches. It reminds me of a, a great line from another classic movie, Sweet Home Alabama, uh, in which the father challenges his daughter to choose between her two suitors. Who's seen this movie? Yeah. And he says... You can't ride two horses with one ass, sugar bee. You can't. You can't ride two horses with one ass. And uh, that's Elijah's point too. You cannot serve two masters, says Elijah. So which, which is it actually, which is it going to be? Come on, guys. Make a decision. But the people say nothing. What's happened there? Why do they say nothing? Perhaps Elijah has shown them something they hadn't noticed before. Perhaps they have their doubts. Perhaps they just don't know how to respond. Or how would they even decide? Well, Elijah now tells them, here's a way you can decide. Verse 22. Thanks, Beck. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophet choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. 
that last bit is not like as super formal there, but it's, it's just like they say, great idea, let's do that. Let's do that. There will be a test. Uh, and the God who answers with fire is the true God. That's how they will be able to decide. Now this is, think about it, this is a bold move from Elijah. It's a move that must have taken real faith an amazing boldness. We're not, we're not told that Elijah had specific instructions, that this is what he had to do. Actually, I think he goes out in faith here. Later on, we see him pray earnestly and ask God to answer him. But he does this because he knows that things need to come out into the open. The people are stuck. In fact, they are lost. They have been led astray by Ahab and his entourage to a dark and ugly place, and they need an intervention. And so, the trial begins. Verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. It's a pathetic, tragic scene. Elijah is merciless. He mocks them. Oh, maybe, maybe Baal's, maybe he's just out of the office. Maybe he's, on, maybe he's gone to the bathroom. Uh, where is, you know, oh, you might be asleep. You need to shout louder. And the prophets get more and more crazed as they call on Baal without any answer at all. But do make sure you remember, like it's, it's, it's quite, it's, it's comic, but it's also important to remember that, that this is not a small thing that is happening. What we're seeing here is Elijah drawing out into the open so that the people can see it. The enormous lie that has taken their kingdom captive and done untold damage. In the name of Baal, the Lord's altars have been torn down. Children have been murdered. The prophets of the Lord have been systematically executed. The history and culture of the community since Moses has been dismantled piece by piece. And now it is being shown for the hollow, evil lie that it is, for Baal stays silent. Surely he's a god. Elijah says, but he isn't. He's nothing. Well, then it's Elijah's turn. Verse 30. 
Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sears of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Elijah is aiming for two things as he prepares the sacrifice. The first is that he wants to make it unmistakably clear who the God is, who he's talking to, who he's banking on. And so he repairs the altar that was turned down, one of the Lord's altars, which had probably been torn down in the course of Baal's worship being promoted. And he does it symbolically with 12 stones, one for each tribe. And, and remember that we're in the northern kingdom at the time, Israel, but Israel was just 10 of those 12 tribes. So by doing it with 12, Elijah is saying, this is the God of your whole history and the God of Judah too. This is, as he prays, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. The second thing he's aiming for is dramatic effect. He wants what he hopes and trusts will happen to be incredibly powerful. And so he pours on water, and more water, and more. Can you imagine He's built the altar. He's put the bits of cow, the bull on top. It's a lot of work, actually. He's dug the trench and it's pouring on water. But he doesn't do a dance. He doesn't cut himself. There is no special magic. All he does is pray. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And an answer comes. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. We will be horrified by the slaughter of the prophets of Baal, I think. It is pretty awful. But 
Also, make no mistake, what we are seeing here is people being set free. This was an evil regime, sustained by a dark and wicked religion. And now in one incredible moment, the Lord shows that he is God and overthrows the power that had captivated his people. And he turns them back to himself. He breaks the prison and says to the captives, come out. The people slay the prophets of Baal because they have been leading them into darkness and poisoning the kingdom. Let's be clear also that the slaughter of the prophets of Baal is something that Elijah and the people do. It's not like the fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice and all Baal's prophets. No, this is the people's response. It is what it means for them at that moment on the edge of darkness to make a decisive choice to follow the Lord and turn away from Baal. We'll come back to this point because it's worth staying with a little bit. But first, let's just see how the story ends. It ends with the drought breaking and questions for King Ahab and Elijah being peculiar. Verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant, servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Thanks, Beck. That's a long reading. Thank you. Elijah doesn't try to kill Ahab. He could have, I presume, but he doesn't. Ahab is the king of Israel. And so Elijah leaves him now to decide what to do. Ahab has been proven wrong in the most spectacular way. And now he's got to find a way forward. And we'll, we'll, we'll see next week that it's not something he finds easy to do. But it's important we notice that Elijah does put the ball back in Ahab's court. It's not like Elijah tries to become king. The story does end, though, with Elijah triumphant. The rain gone for so long does come in response to his prayer as God said it would. And as it falls, Elijah runs in the power of the Lord ahead of Ahab to Jezreel, a city about 30 kilometers southeast of Mount Carmel. Well, we'll pick up next week in Jezreel. For now, though, let's have a think just quickly about how this text challenges us today and what our response to it might be. 
You know, the central theme of this story is the challenge to follow God single-heartedly, without hesitation. This, this theme was there last week, actually, when we read about Obadiah. Remember that Elijah subtly challenges him about whether he is maybe actually trying to serve two masters. We see it here when Elijah confronts the people. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. Elijah sees that the people are trying to do something impossible. They're trying to walk down two paths at the same time. They're trying to lean in two directions at once. And it is getting them nowhere. They are limping, undecided between their options. And they look stupid. And Elijah says, you have to make a choice. The story ends, as we've just seen, with the people making their choice. Coming to a new clarity and decisively turning their backs on Baal. They put one possibility to death, literally, and they seize the other with both hands. What about us? The same choice actually lies before every one of us. Jesus taught that the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That is the call laid upon every human being to see that the Lord is God and to follow him before all else. No one can serve two masters, said Jesus. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll love the one, you'll, you'll, you'll hate this one and be devoted to the other one. We are all summoned to turn aside from every other candidate and to give God always and only our first loyalty, our first affection. You know, we are even called, like the Israelites, to put things to death in order to follow. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians. And just, just hear this language. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. You must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. You've got to put them to death. Now let's be clear, there is a very important difference. The things we are called to put to death are never people. Actually, Jesus refused the way of violence and he refused it for his people. He said, that is not the way we do things. What we have to put to death are always things within ourselves and our own lives, habits of heart and mind and life that take us down a different path. But do notice the language. It's the same. We too are called to a decisive break with the things that draw us away from the Lord. 
Are you doing this? Or are you wavering? Hesitating uncertainly between commitments, one foot on one path and the other foot on another. If you think about yourself and your faith and where you're up to in your journey, are you in, all the way in? Or is there part of you that is looking around or looking back? Is there part of your life you are holding back, still unwilling to surrender? Are there ideas and commitments that are just too precious to you to call into question? We noticed before that when Elijah asks the people this question, they stayed silent. We don't know exactly why they were silent, but I think it's easy to have a reaction that is actually much the same. Do you feel it? When we hear this challenge to be undivided in our commitment, it's quite easy for us too to hesitate, to not quite know how to respond. Why might that be? Well, one reason I think we might remain silent, we might just hesitate, is because we, we doubt this path that we're being called to walk down. That is, we doubt that the way of wholehearted devotion is really wise or really worth it. Maybe we're just really conscious of what it will cost us. Perhaps with our family and friends, or in our career. Perhaps it's about relationships. Perhaps it's about plain old wealth. Money comes in for special attention in Jesus' teaching. He makes it totally clear. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. I think he says it so clearly because almost immediately our instinct is to go, oh, actually, I I think I can. No, you can't, he says. Being a Christian, a fully committed follower of Jesus, has always been difficult when it's done properly, and it's still difficult today. Or perhaps we are actually, it's different to that. Perhaps we're not so worried about the cost, but we're worried about whether this path is actually a good path. I mean, there are so many things that make Christian faith seem kind of difficult. Some things seem, frankly, hard to believe and hard to imagine how they're good. And what about the church? It just doesn't seem to be that great sometimes. And it seems to have been so bound up with so many problems. That kind of still is. Is this really a good path for me? You know, many of these concerns and questions deserve long, proper conversations, and in time I hope we can have them. But for now, though, I just want to point out that this passage draws our attention to another question that, in the end, has got to be decisive. A question that, from a from a certain perspective, is the only one that really matters. The question is the one that Elijah puts to the test against the prophets of Baal. Who 
is really God. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Who is God? That, in the end, is is the decisive question. It is the question we must not let get lost from view. Who is God? For if the Lord is God, then the other questions actually fall aside. It's not that they aren't important at all. They are important. They're just not important enough to change the answer. If the Lord is God, then to follow him is the right path, however costly or worrying it looks. You know, that is what becomes totally clear to the Israelites when the fire falls and consumes the sacrifice and licks up the water in the trench. The Lord, he is God. Do you hear them say it? The Lord, he's, he's God. He is, actually. Holy cow. And once they know that, their hesitation evaporates. For the one who is really God, the living creator God, he he obviously deserves our worship. Brothers and sisters, we have many questions and concerns. There are many ways in which Christian faith is difficult or uncertain today, but don't forget to ask this question, who is God? For God, the living creator God, he has a right to your heart and to mine. He is worth following even if the path is difficult, because to have him is worth the whole world. But just to finish... How do we actually answer that question? How can we know who is the true God? Because, well, for the people of Israel, the question was answered when God made himself known. When he showed himself in a flame of light on Mount Carmel. But what about for us? We weren't there on the mountain. So how can we come to the clarity, the certainty that we need We weren't there on the mountain, but God has shown himself to us. He has shown himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. For in the man, Jesus of Nazareth, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And the presence of God came among us. The word of God was made flesh. And he made known the living and true God once and for all. In in Jesus, the power and the majesty of God came into the darkness of this world like a brilliant flash of lightning. A fire that fell upon the ambiguity and uncertainty of our knowledge of God and put an end to doubt. This is the one. When we look at Jesus we get to see a revelation of God as piercing and powerful as that moment on the mountain when the Lord answered Elijah's prayer and the people cried out, the Lord, he is God. 
It is different. It's different. It's different partly because it wasn't just one dramatic instant. God made himself known in Jesus over the course of a whole human life, cut tragically short. But it's like that because what we are shown in Jesus is not just God's power and majesty, but his grace as well. You see, on Mount Carmel, the people witnessed the Lord's power and majesty, but there was more of God to see than that. What they didn't see, or at least what wasn't obvious, was God's patience with them, his mercy and his love that would rather suffer than give up his people. And that is the holy fire that fell in Jesus Christ. The fire of God's mercy and gracious love. For in Jesus is what we see, think about this for a second. In Jesus, what we see is that God does not just burn up the sacrifice, He is the sacrifice. In Jesus, God stood in our place and lived the life of undivided devotion that we should have lived and then died as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. That is the flash of lightning that we have been given. And if you look at it properly, it is overwhelming. So friends, let me urge you today to look at Jesus and see in him a reason to stop wavering, to stop hesitating, and to set your face towards following the Lord with all your heart. For in him, God has shown himself as truly God, not just full of power and majesty, but full of mercy and love for you. So look at Jesus and decide, maybe for the first time, maybe again afresh, that you are all in. Turn from every other thing that tugs at your heart. Perhaps there are things in your life you need to put to death. And hear his call, come and follow me says Jesus, and don't look back. Let me lead us in prayer. Almighty God, we lift our hearts to you in praise as the true and living God, and we turn aside from all idols, from every false path down which we have strayed and to which we are so easily turned. We turn to you in hope and in confidence of your forgiveness and love. For we see your Son, and in him we see your power and your grace. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.